to diverse voices in educational practice, a mini-series, the Agents of Hope podcast, with me, your host, Dr. Alexandra Saul. In this series, I interview a variety of contributors from my book, also called Diverse Voices in Educational Practice, who share their exciting work promoting meaningful voice practices in education. Our collective aim is to inspire you to develop your own meaningful voice practices. We hope you enjoy the podcast. My guest today is Anastasia Kennett. Anna is a PhD student and Associate Lecturer at the University of Worcester. In 2021, Anna graduated from the University of Worcester with a first class honours undergraduate degree in special educational needs, disability and inclusion. Anna's PhD research explores undergraduate students' experiences of inclusive voice practices in higher education. I'm very excited to welcome her to the podcast. Welcome Anna to the podcast. Thank you, it's really nice to be here. Could you start by outlining for the listener um, what your professional background is, especially within this field of voice work and meaningful voice practice in education? Okay, yes, um, I don't mind. Um, (laughs) So my experience professionally within voice practice has really started nearly four years ago, so not quite four years. Um, Ali and I have worked together on a number of research projects as a SAP student. A bit of context. At the University of Worcester, um, we have an internal funding resource called Students as Academic Partners, where as a lecturer and a researcher, you can develop a project and pay students to work on the research project with you. And Anna and I have done a fair few research projects exploring student voice in higher education. That's right. So the first one we did together was in 2018 and we were looking at student representatives and that kind of system and we were using solution-focused approaches. The second one we did in 2019 looked at mature students' mental health and looked at that over a couple of years now and you know that really fascinated me being a mature student myself at the time and it was great to see what mature students were saying affected their mental health. So we kind of incorporated voice into all those projects um, which yeah really got me interested student voice. I then did a dissertation on student voice on SAP projects specifically, what you mentioned Ali, that you know students get paid to go into the position. And I was looking at the variety of projects and what students' experiences of those projects were. It was very eye-opening actually um, and I hope to kind of write that up as a journal article at some point. Um, and now I'm on a PhD program where I'm looking at student voice in a more inclusive way. So what does inclusive voice mean to students with diverse learner needs? How does it feel when they are given or provided with inclusive student voice? Um, And how can universities be more inclusive of their voice? Could you talk a little bit more about your research design, your kind of questions? Because I'm biased, but I think you have a fascinating (laughs) research proposal. The methodology is a fascinating one, actually, and I'm so glad when I came across it in my reading. It's called Heuristic Inquiry, 
and it very much incorporates the participant as co-researchers. So we're talking again about collaborative voice, but also there is a caveat that the participants slash co-researchers are in some way representative of myself, who will be the researcher, but also I am a participant. So it's a great methodology and means it can be a collaborative research as it comes. to diverse voices in educational practice. I'm sure it wouldn't surprise you that it would be the voice aspect. Um, predominantly, I'm very interested in voice for a variety of students, not just those with diverse learning needs, but you know, we're looking at a variety of students here and, uh, and the topic I was writing about was about diverse genders. Now, some of you might think that that might not impact on their educational experience, but actually it does. Um, and so that really fell into my topic area of interest. Um, I do have a sibling as well who I was writing with um, who um, would identify themselves within a diverse gender outside of the normative male-female and of course their experience, their journey has also interested me in that area as well. You were my first you and Max were the first people I thought of to approach for that chapter and I really feel that that chapter is quite a unique chapter that might be more unexpected in the book and I really like how you've outlined there why it is important from a voice perspective and a meaningful voice perspective. Probably also the chapter that I think is the most progressive and challenging. I don't know if you have a, an opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, diverse genders is an up-and-coming topic, but actually it's been around for a long time. It's just that we're really looking at it from an educational perspective and how we can adapt education to incorporate diverse genders in a more inclusive way. Uh, and that's very interesting for me. Um, and wanting to make sure that their voice is heard through throughout their educational experience, you know, from policy making right through to perhaps even having the opportunity to create either a curriculum or a lesson that might actually incorporate their voice and how their diverse genders have impacted them. That's one of the activities, reflective activities that you've created for the chapter. A structured lesson outline that can be fleshed out and adapted to different contexts. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big, huge fan of this flipped learning style of, you know, trying to get the students to own their education and to own their learning and to understand the processes of learning and education so that they feel more empowered as well as learners to um, stand out and have their voice heard, as I say, right from the curriculum to you know, policy making. That's important. So hopefully the chapter will give that space for practitioners to reflect and you know we, we say at the end don't we um, at the end of the chapter because I contributed it too we're, we're looking for people not to become radical or shift their whole world perspective but to engage with the workbook style activities and try on different perspectives as a means to open up dialogue and conversation with children and young people in their schools who will have different gender presentations. 
Yeah, very much for me, it's about that reflection. You know, every line, every reference, every thought that's been embedded in that chapter is designed for practitioners to really sit back and think, okay, is, is this something that I can incorporate? Has this been something that I can think about in my practice? Um, what are my values currently and how do they sit in with my educational um pedagogy and how can I then adapt that pedagogy but like you said Ali it's not really about changing it overnight. What does meaningful voice practices mean to you? Well I mean you just opened up a can of worms there. Um, Meaningful voice it, it isn't just about voice let's first say that and it isn't just about one person's voice or the collective group voice it it's everything it's it's making sure that we're listening to individuals it's being holistic when we listen to those individuals it's providing those individuals with a means to have a voice that best represents them that is inclusive of them um, whether that's diverse genders whether that's a, a learner need uh, relating to a disability or a mature student it's it's asking them how can I be more inclusive of your voice and listening isn't just about sitting there and listening it's active listening it's making sure that we've taken in what that student is saying and what they're not saying as well actually um, and perhaps acting on it not Acting on it is a, a difficult one because you can't always actively act on everything that a student comes to tell you. That I can understand from a professional perspective. But it's talking with that student or students and coming up collaboratively with some sort of solution. Sometimes even an attempt to act or an acknowledgement that you've heard and tried to understood someone's viewpoint, opinions, perceptions, etc., and then explaining for whatever reason you may not be able to act on that in a certain way. To me, that still feels like a response. Does that make sense? Like you are acting if you do try and set those parameters. Yes. Don't know your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, the response is that you've tried and you've done the best you can and, you know, you've explained why you couldn't or you've, you've said no, but this is why... Um, have you thought of this perhaps offer an alternative that's um, something that you can do but you know it we understand when we wrote the chapter that you can't facilitate everything Um, we know that there are parameters that teachers are not privy to and that unfortunately there are glass ceilings (laughs) shall we say this is why in the first chapter we go back to the work of sherry arnstein and the ladder of participation. It is, I mean, old in terms of theory, sure, but whenever I read, you know, other voice theories or theories of voice and discourse and responding, acting, etc., the seed seem, always seems to be Arnstein. And um, for me, it's so seminal, so that's why. It, it is integral to our definition in the book of meaningful voice practice and I know you picked up on that in the um, in in your chapter as well because ultimately she distinguishes between her categories distinguish between action and no action Absolutely right. <laughs> so that's what 
why it's so fundamental. Yeah, I think, you know, you try your best to be as much on the top end of the ladder as you can um, to be more inclusive, but relating that to voice as much as you can. And be collaborative. I like that term collaborative, but I also like that next step where we're thinking, can meaningful voice, voice be gained by them going off on their own and doing things like little like voice work yes okay so this will be the professionals themselves so we're thinking like what challenges do you face and actually the glass ceiling is your teachers and there are professionals above you who are creating perhaps a glass ceiling Um, again if you're not at liberty to be able to pass that glass ceiling that's going to be a challenge for you potentially Um, but what we're saying is keep within that for now see if you can get some backing from people above you um hopefully they will um but if not do what you can you know this isn't uh, this isn't a, a test for you to do everything that we say it certainly isn't something for you to go in upheaval all your pedagogy and change everything it just is a case of putting in bits that you can when you feel confident um and remember you know even though we're talking here about student voice it's voice across all professionals as well that work with the child you know, it's making sure that the TA has a voice, the SENCA has a voice, the head teacher has a voice, and you all talk collaboratively. Collaboratively, you discuss meaningful voice and what that means for your educational institution, and how can you incorporate it. If you are a head teacher or someone within a position of power and can incorporate it, um, go steady, see what you can do. You know, um, just it's not about changing everything in one go. So if you're a head teacher just see what you can do in relation to you know assigning some different things but it's, it's making sure that everybody who works for you also has a voice so that um, everybody is um, involved and included and you know within within the classroom you may have children who are shy or professionals who are shy um, go steady you know what, what I often find with with those students who I work with is actually when you you give them other options they might take up the other option but actually ultimately they become more confident because you've just allowed them to just be themselves um, what I don't I don't I feel uncomfortable with is this idea that we we make people feel uncomfortable that they have to give a voice when actually I think in some respects we should respect the student for being quiet or for not having a voice and just accept that as some kind of way of them talking about what they want I can't explain this properly but um, in a sense that you know they might not have anything to say like Ali said they might be shy so if we respect them for being shy and we provide other opportunities ultimately that actually gives them the confidence it's it's it works strangely but it actually works um, it works with my students that I've worked with on campus here um, and I've seen some wonderfully shy students come out their shell simply because I gave them other options to provide their voice. What is there to be grateful about because of educational professionals wishing to develop their meaningful voice practices? Well, I think what's, what can be hoped for is actually a more collaborative 
educational environment. Um, your classrooms will be filled with students who might disagree with things that you say, but I, particularly with my students, I find that the most valuable moments in my classroom. Um, I want them to have an independent voice. I want them to have an independent learning journey. Um, but I want it to be collaborative in the sense that they can teach me something. It's not just um, the teacher teaching the students something. What can we hope for is more students feeling like they have a voice, more students actually being included in voice processes. I, I think that you know we we should be enjoying education experience together. The whole classroom should be at one with each other and learning from each other. It's very Vygotsky as well. <laughs> I don't agree that a national curriculum should be put together by uh, government or government agencies. I think the curriculum can be created in the classroom by the teacher and the students themselves or the, adult, the adults in the room. And I kind of want students to learn when they're ready or to be enjoying learning. That's probably why I like the flipped learning approach. <laughs> you, for those who might not know what flipped learning is, could you kind of outline that pedagogy for us? So flipped learning approach my understanding is that we allow students to go and learn and research themselves and to come back and teach the, the teacher something you know the, the teacher might already know it or the teacher might not know it but it's a way of saying you know go, go and find your own learning path your own learning journey in relation to xyz um you know i've often just had a list of names on a powerpoint and said you know let's divide this up into everybody and then everybody else can come back to the classroom and teach it to the class what you have there very much is Vygotsky, where peers learn from each other, but also the students are learning what learning is. If I give them a name of a, a psychologist, for instance, they'll go off and I'll say, you know, go and find me something really juicy or go and find me something really fascinating about this particular psychologist. And there'll be one for each table or something. They'll go off and find and direct what they're interested in. And they come back more more animated and and uh, they like to teach particularly on, on the courses that we teach on they like to teach so it gives them that opportunity to really tailor that and then have the opportunity to teach which um, yeah to incorporate that the students have really valued it so meaningful voice practice there is very implicit it's not something you're sort of objectively doing such as giving a survey at the end of a module it's very much embedded in the pedagogy of the flipped learning experience because they are directing what has been learned and what is important. Yes, very much so. It is, I hope, embedded, being embedded within my, my teaching. I also look at my students and I'm learning about my students because what I find as well is some students have strengths and they, are, they get excited about talking about particular subjects. So what I like to do is analyse that within the classroom and kind of pick up on that. Um, and then if I can incorporate that in any way, I, I, will, I will try and do that because students will learn more from each other. Yeah. Um, and if students are happy to talk about a subject, why are we silencing them when they want to? Um, so yes, I, I do try and embed it as much as I can in practice. So you're a radical who would love to see that approach transferred to primary and secondary <laughs> a complete doing away of the national curriculum yes 
at the end of our time. Anna, I don't know how to say thank you enough for coming in today. Anna has been incredibly patient. She's my first ever podcast guest. Thank you so much, Anna. I hope it's been okay and somewhat enjoyable. Thank you very much. It has really been enjoyable and it was my first podcast and I've learned a lot, but also I'm glad that we were able to have our discussions today. Um, I hope that it does inspire others to think about and reflect on their own practice. We hope you have enjoyed listening to this episode. And if you have enjoyed yourself, please consider reading our book of the same title, Diverse Voices in Educational Practice, published October 31st, 2022, by Speechmark Routledge. Available in all good bookshops. I've always wanted to say that. Goodbye.